yeah, it was, it was quite an incredible journey. So from, yeah, well, originally two guys in, in China exploring blockchain to all these banks piling in to yeah. joining Blademaster startup to sitting in a room with executives from a, you know, a top 10 stock exchange. Uh, and, you know, we had to sort of stop pinching ourselves and asking, you know, is this really happening? Is this, you know, a serious, you know, are they being serious? And they were, you know, <laughs> absolutely, we're not, you know, they it's used a, a, camera, a TV Australian show. Yeah, <laughs> pranking us. Yeah. Um, and they used an Australian version of the phrase, you know, we're not messing around. Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome to the conversation. On today's show, I talked to Dan O'Prey, the chief product officer for crypto at Bact, which started as a crypto exchange that would allow you to receive actual Bitcoin if you bought a futures contract and held it to expiration. That was a way for more con uh, conservative investors to get access to Bitcoin. But BACT has more recently branched out uh, to kind of span the crypto to payment sector where with loyalty programs and uh, by connecting a company's customer base and crypto payments. Uh, it's working with companies like MasterCard and Wyndham Hotels. Before Dan was at BACT, he was the chief strategy officer at Digital Asset, which was made famous for a couple of things. The first was when it hired as its chief executive officer, Blythe Masters, who was very well known on Wall Street uh, from her time at JP Morgan. Digital Asset then went on to um, secure a huge contract with the Australian Stock Exchange to move some of its back office operations onto a blockchain. Um, Dan came to Digital Asset through Hyperledger, which was one of the early um, kind of bank conglomerate uh, enterprises that was, was trying to work with large banks and other um, financial institutions to figure out how they could integrate blockchain into their operations. So as you can see, Dan has been on the forefront of this area of blockchain that's um, sometimes called distributed ledger technology or enterprise blockchain, which involves really well-known global companies trying to figure out if they can become more efficient uh, and save money by putting some of their operations on a blockchain. So with all that said, I hope you enjoyed the episode and thank you for listening. Hey, Dan, how you doing? Welcome to the show. I'm great. Thank you. Thank you, Matt, for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So right off the bat, I was doing a little research on you and I saw that you went to Field University. So I have to ask if you are a supporter of Sheffield United. Uh, I'm, no, I'm from London originally, so I'm actually a West Ham United fan who have a, have a bit of a controversial history with Sheffield United, but did follow Sheffield Wednesday a little bit when I was, when I was there. I lived near Hillsborough. Yeah, that's what I was going to, that's my favorite name, I think, in all of team sports is Sheffield Wednesday. <laughs> Do you, um, where does that come from? Why, why, is there a, a story behind that that you know of? Uh, I don't actually know. I think I may have known once upon a time, but I've forgotten now. Yeah. There's been some significance with their founding or. Yeah. So as a, as a football supporter, it strikes me, I've been watching the Premier League for a really long time and it, it, in England, it's. Soccer is not really a sport. It's it's like part of life. Is is that am I am I getting that right as, a, as an observer from far away? Like, I've you know I've, I've I fell in love with Welcome to Wrexham, and I think that's a really great intimate look at how important 
soccer clubs are to you know either small towns or folks in london but it just seems like it's just part of the fabric of english life very much so yeah i mean it's uh it's it's just sort of you know go to with anyone new you meet it's uh it's just part of who you are and where you're you know where you're from um and i actually grew up in wimbledon in london and uh, unlike in the US where franchises sort of move around, that was one of the, the first teams that was a Premier League team uh, that got relocated to, to Milton Keynes. And I remember that was, you know, really damaging to the community. And obviously fans were incredibly angry. Yeah, yeah. You saw that when um, in the, there was that talk of like a European Super League and people just oh, lost yes. their minds um, <laughs> about yeah, that. Yeah, that was a, a curious few days before it got canceled, you yeah. know. Yeah, as, as a Liverpool supporter in the U.S., I was just, it was, kind of took me aback because it just seemed like, I don't know, it's an idea, but over, like I'm kind of getting at, it just seems like, God, it's it's actually like a fabric of life over there and people take it incredibly seriously. Yep, and uh, the multi-league structure with the lower league clubs, it's not all all about the Premier League and the Big Four or Big Six or whatever it is these days. Um, and the European elite, you know, it's that that romance that any club like Wrexham, you know, can get uh, backing and get promoted and promoted and promoted and end up winning the league or winning the European Champions League. Whereas the yeah Super League was a little exclusive for the big guys. Yeah. And as a Liverpool supporter, I'd, I'd really like this season to just go away. I'd like to start over again, but we don't have to get as into that. As a West Ham fan, uh, yeah, it could be worse, trust me. So. <laughs> <laughs> Are you guys down in the championship right now? I can't remember. Almost, we were we're flirting with relegation. Ah, okay. Well, good luck with that. So, what um what was it like growing up in London when you were a kid? Was that uh, did you have fond memories of it? Can you tell me just a little bit about like life there and your family and and what you guys were were up to? Yeah, no, yeah, very fond memories. Um, yeah, so born in Wimbledon and went to school sort of at the top of my road, so everything very local. Um, yeah right on the suburbs of London. So you're still pretty, pretty suburban, but not, you know, not central, central London, but, uh, very much enjoyed it very much, you know, loved growing up there. Um, you know, I moved around quite a bit when I got older. So I actually, I just, just got back from London last night. It was the first time I'd been back there in about four or five years. So I need to get back more often, but also reminded me it's been a while, uh, and, and not as familiar with it as I used to be. Yeah. How has it changed over the years from when you were a kid? Um, pretty, pretty similar. Still, still very gray and rainy. This, the last week I was there. Um, but you know, I think a lot more, a lot more of the sort of tech industry starting to grow there, which is great to see, not, not as finance dominated as it used to be and, and dependent as it used to be. Um, but by and large, it was kind of just like, you know, being back home, back from the the old days not not a yeah. lot that had changed <laughs> yeah it's funny I'm, I'm from los angeles that's where i am now and uh you know you meet people from london and la and they never go back because <laughs> they see the sun here and they're like oh my god i'm not leaving so <laughs> there's quite a little uh growing up when expat. i would absolutely yeah no once once we get out we rarely come back and uh yeah i used to feel you know everyone gave london a bad rap for the weather and it wasn't that bad but now having lived in nicer places going back there it really does does strike you and have to admit it is true so if certainly yeah. if i lived in la i would, wouldn't think about it <laughs> yeah 
I was joking. We've got a writer who lives in London, and he's an he's an American. Um, and I have weekly calls with him at like it's like four o'clock his time, but it's dark outside. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's why the pub culture exists because you just <laughs> you're gonna go get a pint <laughs> once the sun goes down. Need it. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting what you say about London as more of a tech center because it's uh, it's been interesting to watch different regulators around the world and the UK or English regulatory system seems to be on the forefront and in, in, in terms of crypto, at least the Bank of England seems um, kind of taking it maybe more seriously or, or, or understanding it a little more deeper than other regulatory agencies around the world. Um, is it? Did you, are you picking up on that? Do you think that they're kind of leading the way in, in any sort of like crypto regulation? Uh, I think so, yeah. I think the, the UK government generally has been pretty good with sort of digital initiatives and the payment rails over there, you know, chip and pin and ta you know, touch to pay and, and real-time payments. It's always been, you know, ahead of uh, a lot of the world. Uh, and the UK government in terms of filing your taxes or applying for your driver's license is, is a you know, relatively consumer tech-like experience these days. And then, yeah, as you say, the, the Bank of England have been looking into you know, to crypto generally and then CBDCs more specifically for, for quite some time now, you know, five, six years, maybe plus. Um, and recently looked, I believe they're actually hiring a, a head of CBDCs uh, as well. So, so taking it very seriously. And the FCA have always been good with you know, sort of regulatory sandboxes for, for enabling innovation to happen in a, in a safe and responsible way. Um, and then just seeing what's you know, happened over there as well with the, the neo banks, uh, with Monzo and uh, Revolut and others, uh, yeah. has become you know, quite a big thing. Whereas in the US, it's a lot harder for for challenger financial entities to sort of get into the market. Yeah, and we've been writing a little bit at Decentral about Hong Kong as well. They seem to be um, kind of moving forward pretty quickly. They're they're moving forward on stablecoin regulation, and I think they're trying to to carve out a, a spot for themselves in the sort of crypto global landscape. Growing up as a kid, were you did, did you envision yourself kind of going into the tech space or the, the financial world, or what were your uh, what were your kind of aspirations back then? Um, definitely, yeah. Financial world wasn't wasn't the goal. Um, generally, you know, I, I was entrepreneurial as a kid. I always had a lot of projects and selling things at school and and trying to make money however I could. Um, my father was actually in the telecommunications space and still is uh, doing a startup age seventy, so he wow. can't stop. But uh, he was in early in the sort of modem space. Uh, so that obviously, you know, I was one of the first kids at school to to get the internet, uh, which was a pretty big deal, and generally to get most of the the new gadgets. So always was fascinated by technology and the potential and and how life changing it was. And yeah, I think it's also awesome to be you know, one of the last generations to have seen life pre and post internet and uh, and how everything has changed. So. Always entrepreneurial, always you know, generally very, very interested in tech and, and getting an early taste of that. Yeah, that's a great point. I remember, you know, if you wanted to, like, I don't know, when I was a kid, I wanted to buy a bike or a surfboard or something. We had this thing in LA called the Recycler, and it was literally printed, you know, and it was just nothing but classified ads. And you'd go through by section and you'd look, you know, and try mm -hmm. to find something you wanted and call that person on the phone and, you know, have to bring cash and like, <laughs> kids today they don't they don't know how easy they've it's got a it. different world yeah yeah um 
and then I just one last question like Wimbledon is where the tennis tournament is is that like the same that's like that's why it's got the name there is that yep yeah that's what it's famous for sure yes exactly did you were you into that as a kid did you play tennis at all or was that uh, on your radar uh, a little bit, yeah. I like I like to follow it. Um, been to yeah the Wimbledon tournament a couple of times, but uh, yeah, really soccer was was sort of all encompassing in terms of my my sporting interest. There's there's so much time and energy to be spent just in there that didn't really didn't really have much left for a, a second sport. But always enjoyed yeah. playing it and watching it when the tournament was on. Yeah, and so you played soccer as well as a kid. Yeah, played a lot of soccer. I was actually uh, forced to play rugby as well because that was the the preferred sport at the school uh, I went uh-huh. to. So they, uh, being being yeah, I'm six foot six, and they always you know forced me into being in the uh, in the scrum as a prop, uh, which yeah. I didn't particularly enjoy because it was freezing and just got hurt all the time. But uh, as soon yeah, as I could go sport. back to focusing on soccer, I did absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my wife played it in college, and one day she woke up in the infirmary because she just gotten completely like knocked out, like just she she yeah. had no idea what happened, and woke up like with a nurse asking her who the president was. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> wow, yeah, wow, scary stuff. Um, yeah, and all right, last thing here, I, I want to set the record straight. Soccer is actually an English term for it, and I know we we get a lot of shit here in the United States for for. <laughs> adopting soccer and not football but i just looked this up to make sure i was right and i remembered it correctly it's a it's an oxford slang uh from the word association which was i think how most soccer clubs got started in the 1800s as associations right absolutely yeah it's a association football to distinguish it from uh yeah rugby is also sometimes referred to as football uh as well so yeah your soccer soccer comes from association as you say all right, all right. But we don't use it, it anymore. So I, no. I still, even and, though I uh, live in the U.S., I try and say football. So yeah, yeah. And people sneer at me when I say soccer. Like English folks are like, it's football. I'm like, shut up. Okay. So <laughs> what? Um. So then, so you, you have an entrepreneurial kind of streak in you. Your dad is still is doing a startup at seventy. That's amazing. Um, and then. So you had a modem and you're connecting probably through dial-up back in the day. Um, did that, like a lot of people that I've spoken to on this podcast, you know, that the computer kind of really opened up a new world to them. And especially when they became internet uh, enabled. Was, was that the same sort of thing for you? Absolutely. Yeah, I became obsessed any spare minute. I was on my computer. I was, you know, downloading whatever I could, printing it out, selling it, or uh, yeah. started, you know, light programming back in, in Visual Basic uh, way back in the day, and, and just the ability to to create and get access to things which were, you know, orders of magnitude more than I could do in the, in the real world became, became an obsession. Yeah. Yeah, I remember the freedom too of you know entering a chat room. You could be whoever you wanted to be. You know, you could pretend. You could try on new personas, and you know, and potentially connect to people who you know were brilliant about things. And you could learn in, in all new ways. You know, obviously there were downsides to that as well. But that was it. Did just open up this whole new universe. Um, so, and then uh, absolutely, yeah. And so were you headed towards computer science uh, for, for college and university? Was that sort of uh, something you wanted to, to pursue more? 
It's something I touched on. Um, yeah, I'd sort of say I'm, I'm lightly technical. I've probably always been more or slightly on the commercial business side of things, um, but with enough technical understanding to uh, not to produce anything of value, but uh, to at least understand what people are talking about and work with people who are technical. Um, so I ended up studying business management and, and information management, and, and part of that was was slightly technical, but but not yeah proper computer science degree. Okay, I was interested. Um, you uh, one of your earlier jobs was at um, a place called Madeira Cloud. Um, it was a software as a service mm -hmm. company. Um, were you actually in Beijing for that position? Yeah, I uh, I moved to Beijing when I was about twenty five. Uh, so this was sort of just after, well, a few years after the, the financial crisis. So London was pretty gloomy. There wasn't a lot of opportunity. Everything was pretty depressing. Um, I then had, you know, had met my, my now wife in England, who's American and sort of figured we were going to go and settle down somewhere and have kids and, and that would be it. And we'd sort of be in, you know, that place forever, um, or, you know, for a while. So we thought before we do that, let's go to, to somewhere neutral, uh, as out there and different as we can find. And a couple of friends had actually ended up moving to Beijing, uh, previously and were telling me about it. So we just thought, let's go there for a year. Um, Ended up meeting a, a Chinese guy, you know, just from a, an advert on the internet, you know, who had an idea to start a company um, and in, in the cloud computing space. So I got in touch with him and we ended up starting a company together uh, with a couple of his friends um, in the, yeah, in the sort of software as a service for managing cloud computing infrastructure. Yeah. And what was it like in Beijing at that time? Um... I'm just really curious about China and, and anyone I speak to about just what life was like, what was business like. Like, can you just tell me? I'm just really curious about that. It it was at the time the opposite of London in that everything was booming. Right, there was money going around everywhere, buildings going up, a lot of you know excitement and growth and development and, and opportunity. Um, this was post Beijing Olympics by a couple of years, so they'd just done a lot of modernization as well. Um, but everywhere you went, there were, you know, buildings being created, skyscrapers going up, hustle, bustle, and real, real sort of energy for, you know, becoming a center of, of the world. Um, so I absolutely, you know, love that energizing piece. Yeah, I, sh I should know this, but did China sort of miss the financial crisis? Were they not as affected as the Western economies? Uh, I think that they were definitely hit economically, but it was never, you know, Hong Kong was a finance hub and probably got hit you know, more directly its dependency of, of that industry. Um, but, you know, London, Hong Kong, New York, you know, obviously saw the saw more of the brunt of it. But yeah, economically, it definitely slowed down and hit, but it was still, you know, still booming a couple of years. Right. Year but it wasn't like Chinese mortgages were suddenly all in peril, like in the US or parts no, of the No, they culturally... Uh, tend to have a more culture of savings rather than credit. Uh, I think that's probably shifted now, and credit's become a bigger and bigger thing. But a lot of you know mortgages were were less of a big thing. People would save up and buy houses, you know, the old old fashioned way. Yeah. Um, so I don't believe. Yeah. It's <laughs> nice if you can do it. Yeah. Did you like face much corruption, or like how were things like on a business level, in just terms of you know doing business with other Chinese firms or the the general environment? What was that like? Yeah, we, we so they have you know they're obviously pretty state involved in in 
more so in certain sectors of the economy. So in finance, uh, you know, know, banking, they're all either state-owned or partially state-owned or unofficially state-owned entities. Uh, Within the tech sector, it it was a lot freer. Um, And, you know, it is an area that they saw strategically valuable to to foster in their country. So, you know, on a day-to-day basis, there was a lot of, you know, hoops and structural things that we had to figure out in order to to do business there um but by and large it was it was relatively free and open within the the pure tech space yeah yeah cool so you planned to go there for a year did you did you stay for a year or were you there for a little bit longer once you started the company a little bit longer yeah we uh we started that company um and then we ended up getting funding and then um you know growing that company so I ended up staying for about four and a half years uh overall uh had my son was born over there uh which was an, a, a different experience um but yeah so ended up staying for four and a half years two companies one son two dogs and a cat later <laughs> uh it became sort of most of our you know formative life yeah mm-hmm. There's just a really interesting story in the New York Times the other day about um, a woman who, she's a fashion designer and moved to China and ended up raising her kids in China with her husband. And her point was that, uh, you know, she feels that the communist state, like for all its sort of drawbacks, did a very good job of raising her kids in terms of, you know, like the respect um, for tradition and and elders and and just a lot of different things that, uh, you know, are very kind of, I think, drilled into to people, um, you know, in that society. Um, so I, just, I found that really kind of interesting and uh, made me think about it in a new way. Yeah, that, that was one of the nice things about living there was, you know, was, was the culture, right? Everyone is, uh, you know, extremely hardworking. Um, there was very little crime, you know, other than bikes getting stolen all the time. You know, there was no fear of violence um or break-ins or anything anything like that um so and it, yeah everyone was super nice and super respectful uh, by and large um so it certainly was a very you know you unlike you know uh, uh, the west where where you've got to worry about certain things it, it really was just didn't even occur that something like it yeah might be crime yeah it's yeah, such a tragedy here um my kids are you know doing lockdown drills at schools and things like false alarms it's just it's just terrifying uh it just feels like i have no control over it whatsoever um so Absolutely, yeah. were you then so i think we're probably getting into um the era of bitcoin uh, at some point uh, along this journey mm-hmm. did, did you um so i want to get to what you were doing with hyperledger but tell me how did how did crypto first come across your radar yeah, so it was exactly around that time during Madeira Cloud, where uh, you know we're in the cloud computing space. Uh, you know, obviously reading up on on latest technology very frequently. Remember seeing a, an article. I think it's probably the white paper was posted on on Hacker News. Uh, this was probably around 2013, uh, 12, 13. Um, I have some vague memories of downloading the client and running it, but unfortunately can't find any uh, any old wallets that that are filled with hundreds of Bitcoin. But um, <laughs> I think what you know struck me, yeah, actually in, in London I got a bunch of old laptops, so I was I was thinking of getting them all the old chargers and just checking just in case I, uh, I happen to. But um, 
I had also been getting super into economics around the time as well, um, which sort of led me to Austrian economics and you know, just thinking about things in a different way, coming from the, the land of Keynes and growing up and going through financial crises. Um, I've been getting, you know, doing a lot of reading uh, around economics generally, and then seeing the intersection between some of the, the concepts that I'd started to be coming across on the economic side, combined with you know, new protocol and, and super interesting, you know, elegantly designed technology. Uh, it really sort of hit the sweet spot for me, uh, you know, personally. Um, you know, then, you know, professionally, I ended up leaving the cloud computing company after a few years. Uh, I then was looking to do another startup in the space, but startup thought about doing it in Bitcoin, but this was, yeah, this was 2014 by that point, And really the big, you know, companies were exchanges or payment processes, neither of which I had any idea of how to create or run. Yeah. Um, so that sort of led me to you know, exploring other opportunities. Yeah. yeah, the infrastructure was just really super basic back then, wasn't it? Um, so I wanted to get into because you, you've had um, quite a run here now in, uh, you know, I don't know if you like to call it distributed ledger technology or enterprise blockchain, um, but it's that idea, you know, it's, it's the idea that that's where I started getting into it as a reporter, um, for, uh, you know, reporting on Wall Street, like a lot of the banks and asset managers and others were mm -hmm. thinking about, like, we, we can use this, like, distributed system to our benefit, uh, you know, to, to streamline uh, efficiencies and make things a lot cheaper and faster. But they couldn't obviously because you know they're so highly regulated they couldn't be using uh, any network where they didn't know who they were transacting with so they you know this distributed ledger or uh, enterprise blockchain is when you know everyone in your network and it's you know you've done the kyc and the aml stuff on them and early on i got to tell you i i thought that that might have been where we would have seen some of the first big breakthroughs um in this tech because there's so much at stake uh, and, and so much money to be saved if you could, you know, shorten the, the closing time uh, or uh, for a transaction from three days to, say, three minutes. Um, the banks and, and others could save, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year, if, if not more. I think it's safe to say that that didn't really pan out yet. Um, but it, tell me about, like, when you went to Hyperledger, which for, for listeners, that was, uh, it's, it's a project out of the Linux Foundation, right? It, it is now, yeah. The the it started as a, an independent company, and then ended up being acquired by Digital Asset. We worked with IBM and the Linux Foundation to create a, a new open source project. So there's sort of two hyperledgers. There's Hyperledger, the the first sort of enterprise blockchain as a as a standalone company, and now as a much larger open source project of the Linux Foundation. Yeah. Where's the progress that you've seen in that part of this, of the blockchain world? Like, do you feel like that's still an avenue that, that people are exploring? Or do you think things are shifting to more of a public blockchain, you know, application with privacy controls that, that some people are working on, like at JP Morgan or, or ZK Snarks can help you, you know, make sure that you're not giving away any information to counterparties that you don't want to be giving away? Is that, is it still moving in that direction, do you think? I think it's definitely shifted towards uh, the public chain side, uh, as you say. Um, you know, back then, very much, you know, you, you couldn't really talk to 
to entities about crypto because they would immediately dismiss you as being crazy. So the, the sort of mantra became, you know, blockchain, not Bitcoin. Or when we first had a meeting, it's like, don't worry, we're not here to talk to you about Bitcoin. We're just talking about the, the technology behind Bitcoin that has other, other use cases. And you almost have to start with, forget everything you know, forget everything you've heard. <laughs> let's let's start from scratch and, and you know, reset and, and, and build from there. Um, so yeah, back to your earlier question about sort of getting into finance, that was that was never a goal. But after we started Hyperledger, just to explore what else this tech could be used for um, very quickly, you know, the banking world started piling in and there was a, a really immense amount of interest, uh, which pulled us further and further into that world. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's probably fair to say it hasn't lived up to the hype or the promise yet. Um, you know, TBD to what extent it does. Um, but back then very much, yeah, again, as you say, it was about, we need to know not just who our customers and who the users are transacting on the platform, but who are the vendors, right? Even the concept of relying on a miner and having no one to call if there were a network issue is, is just so alien uh, and in, in some cases still not you know, plausible or not, not palatable for, for enterprise or financial institution customers. But more and more experimentation, I'd say, over time has shifted from the private or enterprise blockchain world to the to the public chain. Yeah, you mentioned uh, the the blockchain, not Bitcoin debate, and I, I have a pretty strong memory of that. That was the first article I tried to write for Bloomberg when I started covering blockchain back then, and uh, it was probably way too long, and my editor spiked it, and I got really mad. <laughs> but I think looking back, it was. <laughs> probably really pretty boring <laughs> but um yeah some of the debates back then were uh you know kind of like it reminds me of what people say about academia you know that the debates are so heated because it doesn't mean anything um but I, i'm not saying that about crypto but i think at the early in the early stages it was a lot smaller and a lot less um you know global and and well known as it is now yeah and i think you know, there was a religious element to it almost, but also there was a there was a feeling that they were competing, right? And I, when I, you know, when we started Hyperledger, I still loved Bitcoin and I still thought it was interesting and great. I just didn't at that time think it was a be all and end all. Um, so to me, they were parallel or complementary or or even sort of just totally different. Um, but there was a feeling within the crypto space that enterprise blockchain was sort of stealing its limelight and its investment and its interest and and vice versa. So there was a natural sort of forced competition between the two that I never felt was actually real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the thing I don't get about maximalists is is why it has to be one and not you know anything else. Uh, just Bitcoin is great. I, I think it's amazing. It's a global payment network that can't be stopped. You know, that's that's huge. But I don't quite understand the folks that don't see the value in say Ethereum or Avalanche or, or any smart contract platform that you want to talk about. Um, I want to get back to Hyperledger, but I, I so I was looking at your Twitter feed and you you've, you're you're quite a prolific retweeter. You don't put out much uh, yourself, which. Coming from a corporate background, I, I think I understand why. I, I remember getting dinged at Bloomberg a couple of times for tweets that I put out and just made me so fucking mad that they were telling me to delete stuff. Um, but it was mostly political things, I think, <laughs> back around 2016. But so you're uh, quite a prolific retweeter. And perusing your feed, I would almost come away thinking you might be a Bitcoin maximalist. Am I far off on that? 
Uh, not too far off. No, I mean, it's been a, a journey from getting into Bitcoin to exploring other things and then really coming back to Bitcoin. Um, not that I ever you know, doubted Bitcoin in the, in the medium term. Um, you know, for me, really, it's, you know, as you say, there, there's not just one application, but money is the biggest and the most interesting application. And to me, you know, looking at the long term in the next 15 to 20 years, I think you know, we have seen a Cambrian explosion of different blockchains, different approaches, different functionality. But ultimately, my guess, right, and it is you know, just an educated guess, is that really the, the platform that wins money will end up winning pretty much every other use case that at least is financial or involves trading, right? Money is always, it's one half of every every transaction pretty much. Um, and nailing a neutral, you know, global internet native money at the base layer, that is the most secure and the most censorship resistant. And I think many would argue that, that Bitcoin's not that. Are then building layers on top of that that will enable different, you know, more functionality, rather than trying to cram all of that functionality into into the base layer. Um, you know, there's no exact clear definition of what a maximalist is, but you know, my my view of it is that long term, the best money wins, and really that needs one, the most well secured blockchain, and then other pieces will be will be built on top in different layers. Yeah. And you're talking about the base layer. So that would be Bitcoin in this example. And then maybe a layer two for that would be like Lightning, the Lightning Network, yeah. um, which makes yeah. payments using uh, like much, much faster than the 10 minute or so uh, transaction, uh, you know, time it takes for a Bitcoin transaction to clear. Um, do you think like with your experience at Hyperledger and then at Digital Asset, do you think, you know, the smart contract platforms have that same capability or, or you're, it seems like you're thinking or, or betting on Bitcoin maybe in the long run um, being being that chain that, that people are using? Yeah, I think you know, it depends on what sort of time horizon we're, we're talking about. You know, maybe it'll be 15 years, maybe it'll be on you know, 50 years, uh, who knows? And, and I don't think it's certainly going to be, you know, there's not going to be one platform for every single application under the sun. Um, not everything needs to be single threaded. Uh, just looking at it from the context of you know, money as a starting point and then money related applications being built around that. I think where a lot of the you know, so-called enterprise blockchain space actually ceased to be blockchain many years ago, um, you know, both with Digital Asset and with R3, who are another big player in that space with their quarter platform, they and us and actually the original Hyperledger um, back in 2014, we didn't use the word blockchain because it was, you know, it achieved a similar sort of thing in terms of synchronizing data and uh, having multi-party workflows. But turns out those weren't great marketing terms that, that got people writing and interested. So the space sort of got forced back into using incorrectly in many cases, using the term blockchain to, uh, uh, you know, because that's what people thought it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I um, yes, I remember uh, on Wall Street, for for example, and and within the higher ups at Bloomberg News, they they were really hesitant to to touch Bitcoin because they thought you know they just associated it with scams and with you know Silk Road or Mt. Gox or whatever it was back at the time, and it mm -hmm. took a lot to um, I think bring those folks around. 
and a lot of I think people still in the media, uh, you know, they're they're quite traditionalist, and so a lot of a lot of the media has a kind of I think um, a vested interest in the status quo kind of continuing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was wondering if uh, did did you work with Jonathan Levy at all at Hyperledger? Uh, yeah, from uh, Hasera. Yeah, he well he I think he helped create the Hyper, Hyperledger fabric. Yeah. Yes. It, yeah. So funny story about him. I went to Burning Man um, a couple of years ago to, to for my book. I wanted to finish the the reporting of the book at Burning Man. So I'm there at this decentral campground where they're they're you know Griff Green is this guy. He's just a force of nature. He's trying to bring the Burning Man folks and the crypto folks together because he you know I think he's onto something that there's a lot of shared kind of um, ethos there between those two groups. And so I'm in this yurt out in the black rock desert and jonathan levy is there and he's like leading this discussion and there's maybe like eight people in this yurt and i figure out who the guy is and i'm like i wanted to tell everybody i'm like holy shit this is like you're really lucky to be sitting you know (laughs) cross-legged like three feet away from this guy because this guy's a monster um that's not really what you do at burning man so i just cut my mouth shut but um (laughs) that that was a (laughs) that was a fun fun trip and uh that's amazing just total coincidence he didn't know he was going to be there and bumped into him or yeah well so griff griff green had brought him in and he was like one of those featured speakers and there were people in this uh, yurt who like really had no idea what blockchain was and they were just asking you know very you know good questions you know but they just were you know new to it and i'm like thinking wow you you could do a lot worse for somebody to explain this to you than jonathan levy so that was uh lucky people indeed yeah yeah Uh, that's something that stuck with me let's talk about you going to digital asset and what they were up to at the time when when did you join um with them and and what was the what was the sort of um bigger context at that point as you recall yeah so the so hyperledger the the company um was was basically just two of us and and some you know part-time people from from around the space who were you know helping out and i think digital asset was probably around 20 people or so um primarily based in new york but a couple of places around the world too so we you know not coming from the finance world hadn't heard of you know that much about blind masters prior to to digital asset but had heard you know superstar from uh, jp morgan has got into the blockchain space and that was really still i think to you know to a lot of people who were around at the time uh, one of the biggest sort of validations that okay this isn't just for nut jobs and criminals you know, someone's <laughs> taking it seriously and maybe i should too um so we didn't really know much about what you know what they were up to they literally just sort of stealthily launched um we happened to be going through new york for part of the swift inner tribe startup challenge and a, a vc uh brian selkis we were talking to at the time sort of connected us and said we should have yeah. a meeting Ryan, um, really he, yeah for listeners yeah. he went on to start masari which yeah. is doing very well indeed um and yeah and so you know, we were in the same spaces. We were a little bit more focused on the blockchain piece. They were focused on the uh, the smart contract piece or the applications building on top of it. Um, and then it, you know, pretty quickly to both sides, we sort of hit it off and, you know, culturally and the views about what we needed to do were pretty similar. So it, it became a choice of, should we both go alone and compete? And, uh, um, or, you know, should, 
tiny startup join larger startup uh, yeah. and and yeah pretty quickly that that we decided on the latter yeah funny story about blythe masters that's um so i wrote i co-wrote a magazine a cover story of the bloomberg markets magazine with blythe and yes uh she was on the that cover was the blockchain not bitcoin tagline on the front page right i think it, it's something was like if I'm, it was like Blythe Masters wants to tell you about the blockchain or something like that. And okay. I've, I've had many people um, on Wall Street tell me in the years since that that was the thing, that magazine story, like really kind of turned the tide and got them into it or like kind of convinced a lot of bankers that there was something here and that they should start exploring it. Um, and Blythe, yeah, she is a force of nature. She was amazing um, and uh, had has had an amazing career. Um, so then... Now, so, and then you guys made pretty big waves, as I recall, uh, and I reported on this quite a bit at the time, when you landed um, ASX down in Australia, who owns the Australian Stock Exchange, and they were going through a revamp of their, of their market structure, basically, for their stock exchange. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that, just for, like from an insider, what that was like? Yeah, it was it was quite an incredible journey. So from yeah, well, originally two guys in, in China exploring blockchain to all these banks piling in to joining Blademaster startup to sitting in a room with executives from a you know a top ten stock exchange, uh, and you know we had to sort of stop pinching ourselves and asking you know is this really happening? Is this you know, a serious? Yeah, you know, are they being serious? And they were you know absolutely we're not. Yeah, you know, they it's used like a, a camera a, TV Australian. Show, yeah, <laughs> pranking us, yeah. um, and they used an Australian version of the phrase, you know, we're not messing around, which mm. uh, I hadn't involved before, uh, hadn't heard before, uh, which you know, involves some expletives. Um, and yeah, and, and pretty quickly it went from, you know, they were in New York and there was a few of them exploring but serious to us flying down to Sydney and spending a whole week inside the, the ASX exchange building. Uh, putting together a prototype based on your know, working hand in hand with their team to us presenting it to their board at the end of that week. Um, yeah, that was for the, you know, obviously an initial prototype as part of the vendor selection stage. Yeah. Uh, and then there were, you know, there was another year or so of prototyping before they actually made the, the decision to, to move ahead with the project. But um, yeah, that was definitely, you know, the biggest thing that happened in the space at that, that time. Yeah, for sure. And what I always found really interesting was that uh, the Australian Stock Exchange, the, the shares were already digitized, right? They were digital entities and that's mm -hmm. how they traded. And so what we're talking about here wasn't, wasn't introducing a blockchain to, for the trading of the stocks because that's, that's way too slow, it would never work, but it was in the clearing side on the back end where you had to move the money and then move the shares. and. In the United States, for example, the DTCC, that can take, I think it's two days now, right? Before you get the money and your shares moved around. It has, two, yeah. yeah, so it used to be three, and you know, back in the day, it used to be uh, pieces of paper were flying around. <laughs> but um, so the, the, the infrastructure was there at the Australian Stock Exchange because it was already like half digital. And, and so, and I know that project's still going on, but I think it's, it's hit some road bumps, but that must have been pretty amazing to be in on the inside of that because it did really grab a lot of people's attention. 
Yeah, I think that was a, you know, as mentioned, sort of Blythe coming into the space was one one point of validation. And then that was a, another significant one for the for the world of finance that, yeah, it's not just hype. It's not just excitement. It was it was getting real. Um, and as you say, it was a, a dematerialized market. So already fully digital um, chess, which is the, the, you know, the current system uh, was about 20 years old, but was still working pretty well. Uh, and they saw it as an opportunity of, you know, to up upgrade their existing systems, as you say, post-trade to not actually touching the exchange piece, but clearing and settlement, um, which was, you know, which was the sort of primary, it was the use case that had the most interest in, in the blockchain space at the time. Yeah. And then, so staying on the exchange topic, you, you then, after digital asset, you went to BACT which is um might not be familiar to some people so i'll just give a little background on it um it's uh, so it's started as a project of intercontinental exchange um which has exchanges all over the world now in london and, and new york and, and they started in energy but then quickly expanded into um financial uh you know things uh, financial markets and then but I was always wondering when I was reporting on them because like CME, one of their competitors had sort of jumped into crypto and, and other big exchanges, futures markets had also done some, some things there, but intercontinental just was sort of sitting on the sidelines. And, uh, then it came in out with this, finally with this, this idea about backed, um, which was something that people had been calling for for a long time, which was a futures market where if you, you go in and you buy a contract, so you buy a, a Bitcoin futures contract on backed. If you held it to expiration, you would actually get delivered to you actual Bitcoin. Uh, a lot of the other, the, all the other contracts out there at the time were financially settled, so you would just get the dollar value of your contract. Um, and that, I know that was a big deal, and I, and I know you weren't there at the time. And we'll talk about how Bact is sort of like expanded into what it's doing. But just curious, like what you've learned by, by being on the inside there about that time and and about like some of the decisions and, and just how that that all played out because that was another sort of i think leap forward here in terms of you know real quick like if i'm an institutional investor and i'm worried about where i but i want to build some bitcoin but i don't want to get into a situation where i don't know who i'm my counterparty is if i can go to a regulated entity like backed and and buy you know these futures on a u.s market that will then turn into actual bitcoin at the end of the contract that's that was huge, right? That was the, that was always the the big um, the the selling point here was that this was uh, a way for you know you didn't have to risk your reputation or getting into regulatory trouble if you wanted to build a crypto portfolio. Absolutely, yeah. So that was yeah, as you say before before my time, I joined about a year and a half ago, and Max Max around four years old, but spinning out of ICE, who who have a large you know commodities you know, futures uh, exchange, well exchanges businesses, uh, and as the New York Stock Exchange let's settled just, piece. Yeah. Let's not forget about the New York Stock Exchange. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, they know what um, to. Yeah, as, as you said, right back back then, it was. Uh, yeah, the, you know, institutional investors aren't just pitching up to, to retail consumer exchanges or, or ATC desks, and they wanted to, a way to acquire Bitcoin in a, in a regulated, safe way. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and the physically delivered piece of that, um, you know, it, as you say, essentially means at the end of the contract expiry, you actually take delivery. You get sent the Bitcoin rather than just the, the cash value of the Bitcoin. So it was a way to, to safely and, you know, to acquire Bitcoin through an end-to-end -end regulated, trusted, yeah, serious uh, exchange. Um, However, there were, you know, some challenges because of that physical delivery pieces with, you know, the wider market that it was perhaps a little bit before its time, um, yeah. whilst, you know, the product was really well designed and, and had demand. Um, some of the FCMs who needed to come on board to actually enable this to a, a wider market, um, you know, weren't comfortable with Bitcoin just yet. Uh, and it's taken them some time to come around. Uh, and so, yeah, the cash, the financially settled contracts definitely got a, you know, a larger portion of that, that volume, uh, yeah, around the time. Yeah. And it's surprisingly complicated. Uh, you would think, oh, I, I just need to send the Bitcoin to whoever holds the contract, but there's so many things that are, uh, you know, we won't get into them here, but just trust me, it is, it is quite complicated and, and risky because even to this day, custodianship for digital assets is you know quite a risky business and and you've you've you know a lot of things can go wrong and that's not you know if you're talking about a state street or, or one of the traditional custodians you know they're very conservative and don't want to have a lot of i think ways for things to go wrong at least that's that's my take on it from just kind of watching from the outside not to, to go into the sort of ftx and crypto collapse piece but one of the things that you mentioned you know market structure right that that's that's something that isn't necessarily paid a ton of attention to until it's important and work at digital asset with exchange groups on the post-trade side right? i learned more about clearing and settlement and, and market structure than i probably you know had desired to but it's really interesting to see how a lot oh, come of on man. market is structure is sexy crypto space sexy. is, is <laughs> separation of concerns between clearing and settlement and custody and exchange and yeah you know, stuff that that clearly really matters because uh as we've seen is a it is a very important piece and um yeah getting getting that right within the crypto space i think is a an important thing for the industry at least for for institutional adoption and, and mainstream consumer adoption yeah and then so there were hints of this at the time too, and I know this before you joined, but like Jeff Sprecher would come out and talk about plans or Kelly Leffler would say, you know, they were always, I think, like Starbucks was an early partner. And I know that they were um, mm -hmm. thinking about how can we get crypto into like the payments sort of, not payments, but into how, you know, just everyday people are going to use, you know, crypto to buy stuff and and i think you know that's taken a little while too but can you talk just like because i know that's a big now part of what backed is doing um is trying to help companies that want to integrate crypto into their you know into their customer base or whatever or you, you've got rewards and loyalty programs can you just kind of walk us through where you, that is now and, and how you see it sort of um in the next couple of years yeah i think Back generally speaking, our goal is to, to to drive utility or actually to enable people to get value out of these assets, not just as a as a store of value or an inflation hedge or a, um, you know for means of speculation. But you know these things were created to to do something, uh, and and the speculation that exists today is speculation that one day they will be used for those things. 
um, and not just, you know, not just a, you know, a number go up and down, um, make some money, get in and out. Uh, you know, Bitcoin originally was created as a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash uh, and not just a, a buy it and put it in your hardware wallet and get rich. Yeah, that's the subhead of the white paper, I think. And so the the Starbucks piece and the payment piece is, is you know, a start of that. Um, so Bact, you know, is a platform that, you know, end consumers probably won't know or see we we are behind some partners who enable it for their consumers so a portion of that is doing the custody so that our partners don't have to rebuild a crypto custody solution which as you say is not easy uh, and also you know well regulated as well so not every entity can get into that uh, or wants to get into that um, and then enabling them to offer their consumers custody, trading, payouts, rewards, uh, and, and payments in some cases as well, and moving more, more and more towards the mainstream users and adoption and utility than just the, the early adopter uh, exchange trading use cases. And are you guys still working with Starbucks? Because I know they, they got some attention recently for uh, they're, they're trying out right a part of their rewards program that's crypto based is that still a partnership that you guys are on uh we're still live with them uh in the us on ios for for pay with bitcoin uh so that okay. is still live today in the starbucks app uh we haven't been involved in the the odyssey uh web3 portion of that that they're they're in beta at the moment with yeah. okay uh, yeah that's right it's it's is it nfts that they're doing or something like that where you get loyalty it, it, it is yeah i mean uh yeah. They've they've renamed NFTs as, as stamps, so I think they're sort of taking yeah. a little bit of a optical step back from the NFT market. Um, but it's a way to yeah to to participate and earn points and redeem them for you know, NFT yeah. type collectibles. A lot of people are doing that. They're they're steering away from NFT as, as using it as a term. Like in the music um, kind of Web three world, a lot of like musicians are still feel like it's kind of dirty and, and they don't want to be associated with it. So yeah. they'll, they'll have. Web three streaming or something like that in the music, but they'll they'll call it something different. But um, it's interesting, kind of back to the blockchain, not Bitcoin, kind of discussion. <laughs> yeah, and I think ultimately, right, it's going to be just about the value that it provides, and and not yeah. You know, NFTs get a lot of attention. Blockchain got a lot of attention because of what it was, not yeah, not proving out the value, and, and so we got to get back to that. And where do you see this going? Like with customer rewards or loyalty? Like how do you? Is it? Is it using crypto rails to do things that we already do? Is that the efficiency here? Or like, wh what is the, um, what's the problem you guys are hoping to solve for here? In the, yeah, there's a couple of pieces. There's, there's you know, how do you get crypto beyond the diehards like us who, who live in a bubble and already get it into the hands of mainstream everyday users? And it's often easy to forget you know, I know there's a meme as sort of, you know, how early we still are, but um, most normal people have barely, you know, still have, uh, have you know, never actually held crypto or used it for something. So how do we make it more palatable and usable and, and provide that value to the end user, whether they know they're using crypto under the hood or not? So one of the areas I'm most excited about there, as you mentioned earlier, Lightning uh, as a layer two payments network for Bitcoin, uh, is a new alternative payment rail that can compete with you know, traditional debit, credit, ACH, wire uh, rails, yeah. uh, but do it a lot faster, for, you know, for almost for free. Um, 
And so it's basically they batch transactions off chain, right? They like kind of batch transactions and then they only go on chain for certain things. Is that like that's the way that it's yeah. like it's like getting a bar tab. I think it was explained to me one time. Like you just you don't pay every that's time. That's a good just, analogy. Yeah, you, you, yeah, get your so tab. you can go back and forth sending each other yeah, you know, prompt well provable promises to pay that can actually be enforced. Um and then you can choose when you want to settle up and, and close out the tab and yeah. get the Bitcoin on chain. And then interestingly, like just the other day, there's there's now um we were speaking about NFTs, they're they're starting to do NFTs on the Bitcoin blockchain. Um with they are, which, that's been a bit of a controversy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. People are talking about maximalists. Um that's kind of like making some <laughs> people's heads explode. It seems to me that there's a like a thread here where you you know you, you've been working for big groups where like um, going back you know Hyperledger um, got uh, involved with like a lot of like well, digital asset for for sure was you know working with big firms and now at Backed um, you're you're trying to appeal to you know some of the world's largest corporations and and trying to get them to to see how they can integrate crypto into their like daily business um do you how's that going like are you optimistic here about that is is the win, the crypto winter we're in right now having um you know pressure is it putting pressure on that or is this a time where you guys are building or how, how do you see the big picture right now yeah i mean um it's it's not the first crash right that, that we've been through uh it probably won't be the last either uh so i think Generally speaking, most of the large companies that are, are taking it seriously now have been taking it seriously long enough that they're aware that you know, these things happen uh, mm -hmm. in the early days uh, as it matures and it is still pretty volatile and there is still a lot of, uh, I don't want to hesitate to say fluff, but a lot of clearly in, in recent cases, poor business practices all the way to criminal fraud. Um, so, you know, ensuring that they're working with a partner that is highly regulated, you know, we're a public company ourselves, like super highly audited, regulated by the New York Department of Financial Services with uh, BIP license and trust license. Um, so the types of companies that choose to work with, you know, ice-backed public companies that are, are highly regulated understand that uh you know we're not subject to a lot of the the challenges that the wider space has has seen and and i think our value in that position has grown stronger over the court last year um as people you know when times are good uh it doesn't matter so much you know what you're investing in or who you're working with it only matters when when things go wrong um so i think long term it's well it's a positive for the industry to have more of a clear out of some of the the uh, less well-run yeah. or more speculative spaces and then of course it'll slow down in the the interim but i think it's positive for the industry and, and largely positive for backed uh, in the long term as well i can't imagine what it must have been like uh and i'm not going to ask you to opine on this because you probably won't but from an inside a regulated exchange to, to seeing what happened with FTX and just the the utter shit show that it was uh, it, that must have been something. Um, it was quite a yeah, quite a few months. <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> still still is quite something. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure, for sure. Um, and it feels to me for the first time in a while uh, that things 
like you're saying, maybe I think most everything's been cleared out that is was sort of teetering or, you know, the rumor mill was, you know, Genesis was the last one to, to declare bankruptcy. You know, maybe Digital Currency Group might have something of a hangover there. I don't know, but it, I don't know if you agree, but it feels to me like we have turned a corner from 2022 and, and all of the centralized failures that we saw and um, the over leverage and the, the credit, the crypto credit market that really got everybody into trouble. Do, do you think, are you picking up on that at all? Do you think things are um, starting to, to kind of come around? I, I think in the, the medium term, yes, uh, that, you know, the, the crypto market generally has a pretty short memory and, and, and things do, you know, once there is a big clear out, things do start to improve relatively quickly. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's the last, uh, or at least, you know, no, maybe. I'm, I, I'm not saying that. A few. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, there'll be more. Uh, we just don't know where. There will be more, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think for that that particular piece on the on the lending side and and the the yeah, the, yeah criminal exchange activity, uh, it's definitely yeah it, that should be the the last hopefully that we see of it in the next year uh, at least. Well, yeah, when when you've been around this as long as we have, you know, it's amazing how resilient crypto is and all the things that it can absorb and keep going still i i, I am continually amazed by that um you know going yeah. back to mount gox or whatever you know you can like there's a long history here of of dead bodies um but crypto is still um moving forward and innovating the price will go up it'll go down there'll be you know explosions in pockets of the market but the the true value is there and it is going to be realized and it's not going to go away um there'll just be you know bumps along the way but uh, i think it's you know proof in its resilience and anti-fragility and it was you know designed to to be attacked right if uh in, in some ways the more attacks and more failures that happen the more confident we can be about it because it's being tested in, in multiple different ways. Yeah, that's a great point. A great, great point to end on. Uh, Dan O'Prey, you're the chief product officer for Bitcoin and crypto at Bact. Um, you, everybody should go check out Bact, what they're doing. Uh, and Dan, uh, tell folks where they can find you and where they can get more information on Bact. Sure. Uh, Bact is at uh, bakkt.com. Uh, or BAKKT on Twitter. Uh, and you can mostly find me on Twitter, uh, Dan O'Prey. Awesome. And uh, speaking of Twitter, I liked your, I liked your, your profile pic with the laser eyes coming out. So that, that was not lost on me. Real, real life laser eyes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Gotta keep, keep going. And a diamond hand. Yeah. All right. Well, Dan, thanks so much. Uh, this has been a real pleasure. And thanks for being so generous with your time and, and sharing your experiences with us. Not at all. Thank you so much, Matt. Really enjoyed it. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to rate and follow this show on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Matt Bogart with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes. 